it might sound kind of cheesy, but I always think about, you know, you live your purpose and you leave your legacy. I lost a lot of friends over in Iraq and uh, I'm still here. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. Today, I have Aaron Williamson, who went from the Marine Corps to being a trainer to some huge stars to being a stuntman and now an actor. But the path was certainly not smooth. Before Aaron met Zac Efron and trained him for the film The Lucky One, he was living out of his car in New Orleans. Before I tell you the rest, I want to remind you my book is coming out next week. October 27th, 2020. There's a link where you can pre-order it in the show notes or you can visit 10,000nos.com or matthewdelnegro.com to get it there as well. Any support is appreciated, but like this podcast, it's called 10,000 Knows: How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes. So if you don't buy it, I'll get over it. But seriously, buy it. Also want to remind you that you can sign up for our weekly newsletter at 10,000knows.com as well. A little something to fire you up for the week every Monday morning in your inbox. And as always, if you dig this show, please rate and review it wherever you listen and share it with your friends. Okay, back to Aaron. I told you he lived out of his car, but even before that, before the Marine Corps, he OD'd in seventh grade at the age of 12. His upbringing was rough. But you're going to hear how he got through it, and it's going to inspire you to get through your own struggles. By now, he has trained the likes of The Rock, Sylvester Stallone, Josh Brolin, J.K. Simmons, James Marsden. You get the picture. But after doing stunt work on The Purge, Birds of Prey, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, just to name a few, Aaron is now moving away from the fitness and stunt industry and has dived into the craft of acting. Here he is, Aaron Williamson. So my childhood up until about fifth grade was, was pretty normal. Uh, and then my mom and my stepdad, who I consider my real father, had some issues, ended up getting a divorce. It really affected me in a bad way. Uh, I was going to a, a pretty shitty school. Wasn't, wasn't the best for, uh, for education, but it was a public school and it was right by where I live. So you kind of take what you get. And, uh, I got depressed, kind of started going down hill in sixth grade. And, uh, you know, it was getting my ass beat by this group of kids every day who just kind of preyed on my weakness. And it was just one day I kind of had it and fought back for the first time ever. And it felt good. But that led me down an even worse path to link up with all the people you don't want to link up with. So, you know, by seventh grade, I'm doing cocaine and speed and hanging out with people on house arrest. Um, I overdosed on drugs in seventh grade, cocaine and speed almost died. Seventh grade. So you're like 12 years, 12 years old at that point. And let me ask you, when you said you were getting your ass beat, were you a particularly small kid growing up? Yeah. So my kneecap was bigger than my thigh. That's how skinny I was. Amazing. Yeah, it was, 
genetics were out in my favor. That's amazing to look at you now and to and to think that and and all the hope that could give people that are listening yeah. that think, you know, oh, it's just someone's lucky. I'm I'm sure maybe you've discovered and we can get into it later that you have better genetics than you realize, but so much comes to work ethic and training and what you do and um and so at that point in seventh grade, I mean that's gotta be harrowing for your parents. Now your your mom and your stepdad are split at this point when you OD'd? Yeah, they're split now. Um, after this situation happened, my mom actually sent me to Missouri to go live with uh, to live with her uh, father and my grandpa in the Ozarks for the summer just to get me away from everything. So, you know, city boy from Daytona Beach on the wrong road. Hell, I'm in the middle of the Ozarks now building outhouses, taking care of horses and pigs. So it was good to get away. But the problem is it didn't, there was no real cure for me. So when I got back, I just fell right into the same, the same boat. And, uh, you know, by my ninth grade year, I was just getting in so much trouble that no one wanted anything to do with me. My real father came back in the picture and he lived in Tennessee, Chattanooga. So he got custody of me, came to Florida, picked me up, drove me back up to Chattanooga. This was on Thanksgiving. I remember, uh, uh, 90, 93, 94, something like that. And put me in a, a, a private or a public school and just ended up in the same crowd. So they couldn't take me anymore and sent me back to Florida and ended up in a, a psychiatric rehab center. You're getting in fights that whole time, getting in trouble, doing terribly in school, all of it? All of it. Yeah. Just what do you, like, oh, go on. No, I just... uh I didn't really know who I was or what I was doing. I didn't have any respect for authority. I just wanted to kind of do things the way I wanted to do them. And you know how it is when you're that age, sometimes you think you always know what's best for you. Uh, so that's kind of where I was, but to a degree that no other kid should be. And what do you think, like, if you could kind of, you know, it's easier now in retrospect to look back, but when you're thinking about, you know, to, to hear that, look, I've, I had someone else on this show that uh, was actually went to my high school and, and had uh, drug problems around the same age. And I understand it when I hear it. What I'm wondering from your perspective, what was it that led you to that at such an early age? Was it like a feeling of hopelessness in school? Like that wasn't clicking for you? Was it anger at the, the split between your mom and your stepdad, was it a combo? If you, if you could put your finger on it, cause I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, it sounds like eventually you evolved out of it, but I'm just wondering what got you there in the first place. I think it was just going from what I would consider to be a healthy, happy family to having it being torn apart. And, uh, having these new feelings of depression that I've never had and it, it being a scary feeling and not really knowing how to deal with that. And then because of that, you come across as weak to some people and they prey on it, which is where the fighting started in school. And it just led, uh, it led me to become very angry and I just always looked for a way to take it out on somebody. And did you, at that point, like when did your, body transform 
because if you were a kid whose kneecaps were bigger than your thighs and I've seen you just on Instagram, you're an absolute beast. Obviously this was a long time ago we're talking about, but when did you have that, when you were with that crowd getting into fights, had you at that point found a gym and kind of gotten bigger and now people were like, holy cow, he's angry and he's big and what are we going to do with him or not yet still? No, not yet. I, I, to be honest with you, when I, so I went to this, my real father, when he couldn't handle me anymore, he brought me back to Florida to uh, Panama city and put me in this, this rehab center. I was a couple weeks away from going into foster care before my mom came back in the picture and, uh, got me and brought me back to Daytona beach and put me in a private school. So now I'm in a private school. She's paying a lot of money. Everyone's trying to be on the, on the, the up and up because they know it's everyone's fault. Uh, I tried to respect the fact that there's money involved now in my education. So there's, I need to, I need to try and be more productive and respectful. So I got into sports. This is my second ninth grade year. Uh, and it, it helped getting into sports. I played football. I was playing baseball. I was doing uh, shot put and disc and volleyball. I was playing as much as I could. So that was my intro into athletics. And then, started to understand physical fitness a little bit, but I never really embraced it until I was in the Marine Corps. Really? And, and, uh, with sports in high school, like, you know, your freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, you're starting to play varsity. Did you play all the way through? And was it something where you found like a, a sweet spot and confidence there and the camaraderie of a team or, or was, or were you just kind of like, average and you just liked it, but you were like, how did that, did it transform you in some way or was it? No, nothing really transformed me. Although football was kind of my, ended up being my, my passion sport. Just, I think for the physicality of it. Yeah. Um, I excelled at football. I actually had a couple of division two scholarships um, towards the end of my, my, uh, my high school career, but some other things happened. It didn't really, didn't really work out the way I had anticipated. So uh, the physicality of football, though, is it helped ground my mind a little bit and get me in the weight room around 11th, 12th grade. So around that time is where my life started to shift a little bit. But that time I was just so gone. It was like, what do I, what do I even do now? Right. I I, I didn't take school seriously whatsoever. Uh, And, and what about now? Feel free not to answer these, but just because it's a 10,000 no's and it's all about overcoming adversity. You said you had a couple of options possibly to get scholarships, division two, something came up. Was that, was that, first of all, if you don't want to talk about it, I get it. Uh, if you do, was it something that was like a disciplinary thing or, or, uh, yeah, I, so I work, I started working at subway in high school, making sandwiches. My mom was a manager of a bunch of different subways. So, she was trying to teach me the value of work ethic. And in high school, I appreciated it because I was making money. I was able to buy my own car and it was like 1500 bucks. And, uh, but the subway that I was working at in my junior year, the manager didn't like me. And there was another employee who didn't like me in there. And they kind of set it up to make it look like I robbed the place. So I had, uh, my mom and I went to court and we were fighting it. The, 
I mean, every step of the way, but just the way they manipulated the whole situation, it was almost impossible to make it look like it wasn't me. So I had a, uh, a third degree felony on my, on my record now. So it kind of took away all the opportunities that I would have. And it was total BS. They yeah. just made it up to yeah. slander you. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so, oh, so on. No, my, my mom even, you know, she tried to testify that I was in bed, you know, it was like, uh, <laughs> you know, if I'm watching him sleep, how can he be doing this? You know, but it's yeah, water under the bridge now. So you take that, you lose these opportunities, you're done with high school, your grades are no good to get you into college. You make a choice to join the Marine, the Marine Corps, you go, you, is that right after high school? Yeah, two uh, weeks after. Two weeks after. So walk us through that. What what was was that? Were you gung ho to go? Did you get there? And was it shocking? Did you realize that either you weren't as tough as you thought you were when you were surrounded by, you know, you, instructors and and everything, or did you just immediately thrive at that point? Uh I started prepping for it in my, my senior year of high school and I realized how hard it was just even preparing for the just preparing for boot camp. And everyone didn't believe that I'd be able to do it, which was more motivation for me. So I remember showing up on the yellow footprints. I don't know if you've ever heard of the yellow footprints at, on a, a Marine Corps recruit depot. I actually have not, which is I got a, I got a bunch of Navy friends, which I'm sure you'll make fun of, but they were, they, they were SEALs, so they can't make too much fun yeah. of them. But they, but I don't know, I don't actually know a ton about the Marine Corps. So I a lot of buddies who were SEALs too, but in the, in the Marine Corps, when you, when you arrive to boot camp, you show up on a bus in Paris Island. It's like you're driving through the swamp to get to where you're going. Uh, but when you pull up, the bus stops. And when you look outside, there's just a line of yellow footprints at a 45 degree angle, which is the position of attention. So you sit there quiet and wait for the drill instructors to come on and tell you what to do, but they don't just come on and tell you what to do. They come running on screaming at you to get off the bus and get on the yellow footprints. Um, we got off the bus, got on the yellow footprints. And I remember the drill instructor talking or yelling instructions on what we were like, what we were getting ready to do. And I looked at them. It's the worst thing you can do. Your eyes straight ahead. You don't look at anybody. And uh, that's when I knew I was in for a real treat. I didn't know. I didn't really know what I was in for, but I knew it was a lot more than I had thought. So that was my, my intro. You don't sleep the first few days. Your ankles are just swollen. You're doing a bunch of in process saying, you, you know, you might get a couple hours of sleep here and there. But uh, I thrived more than I can even put into words. Really? Yeah. And, and, and I, I needed that. And I didn't realize how much I needed it. So how long did you serve? You were, you were in for how many? I, I went in the summer of, uh, of, uh, 98, uh, July 98. And I got out, uh, summer of Oh five, uh, July of 05. So seven years. And that brought you overseas. I understand. So you were, how, how immediately did you find yourself overseas? Where else, you know, did you, did it expand your mind in a way that you were just introduced to new cultures? I would imagine you're traveling the world, but you're obviously there with a very specific mission. Um, I know you rose through the ranks 
in in Baghdad, I think it was, where you were you were a part of uh, an operation that you rose through the ranks and ended up running it. But just kind of walk us through that because it, 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 you know I, what I'm interested in for for my listeners really is like you know you, you, you're listening to you talk about school and saying how it was just not for you, and it's my belief is that it's not a gauge of it's just different people learn in different ways. Some people are more, you know, hands-on. Some people are, so you can start to believe the narrative that you're not smart. If you're, for example, not a student, you put you in another situation and all of a sudden, you know, if you're, if you're given the responsibility to lead men, that's not only physical, that's, that's character, that's intelligence, it's everything. So how did you kind of, did you become more of a student? in a way for through the Marine Corps. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I was like a sponge and anything I could learn. I just took it all in. When I, when I graduated Marine Corps boot camp, I was meritoriously promoted. Um, I was one of the squad leaders for my platoon. And I remember going home on leave before I went to my next assignment and just realized how much I was completely out of place in Daytona beach. It was at that point I realized that I've, I outgrew where I was born and it was time for me to move on. Uh, but it, it, it instilled discipline and <clears throat> leadership and structure and, and, uh, perseverance to, to a degree that I, like, it just brought out so many things in me that I never knew I had. And ironically where I'm at now, kind of fast tracking a little bit, it, it prepared me for where I'm at now in life. But when I, uh, my first duty station was in the fleet Marine force with first battalion, second Marines at Camp Lejeune. Um, I did one pump to Okinawa and that's where my whole Marine Corps career changed dramatically because I had special duty assignments that 99.9% of other Marines don't ever get the opportunity to do. And by that, I mean, uh, I had two special duty assignments. One was the Marine Corps body bearer section. So all the Marines who, uh, you see get buried there's a small 15 man section based out of Washington, DC who perform funerals out of Arlington national cemetery. And that's what I did. So I was, I was screened in Okinawa, Japan while I was um, deployed. And when I got back to the States to camp Lejeune, they came down to, uh, to Lejeune to screen me. And next thing I know I had orders cut to go to DC to be a part of the body bear section. Uh, so I got to the body bear section, uh, ended up becoming the section leader. So, you know, you figure four five, 600 funerals a year you're doing. Uh, it's a very, very humbling, very humbling duty. Probably one of the most humbling things I've ever done because when you're performing a funeral for each one of these families, they're the, the last image they're going to have of their, of their loved one. So it's, we train like animals to make sure that it's as flawless as humanly possible. And we train in a way that other services don't. We, we carry six men uh, teams on a casket, whereas other, other services do eight. Maybe they changed, but I don't think they have. I think it's still, uh, I think it's still eight. And then we raise the casket over the hole as a final salute, no matter how heavy it is. Uh, so that was, that was my first special duty. And then from there, as I was getting ready to go back out to the fleet, uh, I ended up getting screened 
by General Peter Pace, who at the time was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, so I'm, I'm, here I am now a sergeant getting ready to go over to the Pentagon to knock on a four-star general's door to, uh, to be interviewed by him. And I'll, I'll never forget that day because <clears throat> a plethora of thoughts went through my head about how I grew up, what I went through. And then here I am now, a sergeant in the Marine Corps at the Pentagon, walking into a four-star general's office about to get interviewed for a position to work. And it was just the most surreal thing ever. We traveled. And you're still early 20s at this point, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, early 20s. Yeah. And uh, so we, him and I, him and I hit it off. It's, the position is actually an army billet. So he specifically had to write a waiver to the secretary of defense to, uh, to appoint me to that position. And then I had to go through several months of specialized training, high-risk personnel, uh, anti-terrorism, evasive driving, and different courses to, to prepare for that duty. But that's how I would leave the Marine Corps was in that billet. So when I went to Iraq, it was actually on a, on a contractor mission because General Pace's executive assistant at the time went over there to head the um, identity management mission that, that Rumsfeld had implemented based on the Mosul Chow Hall bombings that killed a ton of people up in the north. So they were trying to figure out a way to secure these bases. And the only way that they could think of to, to do it in an efficient, secure way was through biometric data. So what did that entail for you? For How long were you there? And what, and what kind of, was it, you know, combat? Was it like, like every day, a lot of action? Were you... It sounds like it's very specialized what you're doing, but what does that entail while you're there? Uh, so when I, when I first started, I was a team leader based out of Baghdad for one, one base and talking about rising through the ranks. Um, we had, we ended up having 10 tier one sites and five tier two sites and three DNA labs. So what ended up happening was I went from the team leader to the deputy operations manager. So I would oversee all the sites and I would, I was always on the road flying around, which is dangerous. And you would always fall in line with a unit, whether a Marine Corps or army who might need your assistance on a specific mission where they're trying to identify somebody. And there's a lot of danger in it because, uh, as time went on and people understood what we were doing, the biometrics community became more of a target because you can't, you can lift a fit, you can lift a latent fingerprint off of a, off of an, uh, uh, an IED that's already been exploded. So if there's been a detonation to a vehicle, you can still have latent uh, examiners pull prints and identify someone, even though it's the last thing you would think about. You can pull a, you can pull a fingerprint off of a charred piece of metal. So, you you kind of rise through the ranks. You're there. You is that the last position you hold a, as a Marine before getting out, or did you do anything else before you got out? I, what I'm I guess what I'm interested in that you know I know there's a period in your life, and I don't know the timeline, but you had this turnaround. You rise through the ranks. You find your stride. And then 
I know eventually you you had a period where you're homeless, living out of your car yeah. in New Orleans, as I heard it. And I'm interested in what that time period was and what happened in your estimation, how that came to be from that height to that depth. And then I know you kind of had a resurgence, which I want to get into as well, obviously. So that, that project that I just explained, that base access program was the first two years. And then I got switched over to an Iraqi program, specifically working directly with the Iraqis, which is extremely dangerous is where a lot of the, the bad stuff that I was involved in happened because there's a lot less U.S. support in that arena because they were trying to really let the Iraqis run with it. So, you know, I was running with Iraqis every day. I was in charge of, you know, at least 50 Iraqis. Um, our, our office was in what was considered the pink zone. So I did that for another two years and uh, just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, at that time... In 09, the summer of 09, we were literally turning everything over to the Iraqis, transitioning out of there. And the close calls were just too many. And for some God-given reason, I, I'm still alive and it's time to move on and figure out the next step because I, in my head, I was just becoming very twisted and uh, disconnected in the way that when I was back home in the States, I really couldn't identify it to anything because that was my new normal over there. I had been over there for so long. Yeah. So I, I took a leap of faith in 09, the summer of 09, to come to New Orleans to do some contract work with Marine Forces North. So um, U.S. Northern Command has a component command for each branch of the service, and the Marine Corps was in New Orleans. Um, I knew the lieutenant colonel there, and there was a chance that I would be able to help stand up one of the new uh, cells within that uh, program, which is the insurance security emergency management uh, section. So I took a leap of faith, left, went to New Orleans to do that, uh, got to New Orleans and the funding wasn't there to support it. So it kind of left me trying to figure out what to do now. And that's where my life started to go downhill because even though I have money saved when you're not working for so long and I support my family back home, I've got two little girls and uh, the bills add up and they don't go away. So yeah. I just kind of burned through everything. Couldn't find work and living out of my car now. And, and at that point, are you already certified as a trainer? Are you training or not even, you're still just not sure what's next. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out what's next after going through several months of, just failure. Uh, I was ready to go back overseas and just say the hell with it. And everyone I know said, don't do it. You, you have a love for fitness. You're good at it. In the Marine Corps, I started getting into bodybuilding and, and just the human physique and the anatomy and every nutrition, the whole nine. So I listened to everyone, got certified as a trainer and a, a nutrition consultant got into a 24 hour gym uptown New Orleans. And that was kind of my forte into the, the training business for about six months. I trained out of this gym uptown. It was a 24 hour gym. And, uh, in December of 2010, I met Zach Efron at the gym. I was training out of, 
Uh, he was doing a movie called the lucky one, which is about a Marine Iraq veteran. Uh, so him and I hit it off. They, they brought me to set. I met the producer director. They told me what they would like me to help him with. And that was kind of my intro into film. And at the time, what I didn't realize was there were more films and TV shows being shot in Louisiana than anywhere else in the world. So it was kind of when I do my interviews and stuff, I always talk about this kind of being a destiny thing. You, you and I, so I realized you were in uh, Terminator Genesis and you and I, that means we're in New Orleans at the same time. I shot a movie called Hot Pursuit uh, with oh, Reese yeah. Witherspoon and Sofia yeah. Vergara. And I think it was in 2014 or 2015. And I believe you guys were shooting. There were like five or six movies, studio movies being done at the same time down there that, that summer. I was like, I was there like May, June, July. Uh, so yeah. Talk to us about that. The whole stunt world and, and, and destiny. You know, there are a lot of young actors that listen to this show. And I always tell young actors there, you know, you can get advice from me on what to do, but it's only one dude's advice. And my way of doing it is going to be different than yours. And I don't, I can't tell you where to live. I can't tell you who to study with. I can tell you some principles of things that I think will help your cause, but everybody's path is unique. So here you are. First of all, yeah, that happens to be a hotbed for, at the time, because of the Louisiana tax breaks, that happened to be a real hotbed for stunt, you know, uh, stuntmen. I know I met a bunch and they were like, yeah, we're living here because there's so much work. So that's one. I don't think it sounds like it was planned for you. That's just destiny. The other is the way Zac Efron met you. Now, I don't know if this was just something on, you know, they're making it sound really cool in this piece that I saw, or if it really was this way. Did he come into the gym and see a poster of you on the wall and said, who's that guy? Like, how did that come about? Because you weren't advertising yourself as no. that, so right? I the gym I was training out of, I had this kind of military collage set up of it kind of, I did that just to make it stand out so you could see I was fit, but also that I was a Marine. So when you look at who the trainers are, mine stuck out. Oh. So at the time, uh, Zach came to the gym, his trainer was a former SEAL, uh, Logan Hood, who actually trained the cast for 300. And uh, so those two came up to me and we started talking and that's, that's how the whole thing started right there. They saw the, my picture on the wall. And what was the arrangement? Because if he had Logan hood, what did he use you as a trainer at that point? Or was he more using you as a guy whose brain he could pick, who was similar to the character that he was playing? Yeah. So I initially came on as his tech advisor to teach him how to how Marine would approach a certain situation or how, you know, how they walk, how they march, just the, the basic nuances of, of being a Marine. And at the end of the film, when Logan left, Zach still had a few more weeks there. So we just started training together, kind of just as friend to friend. And we trained literally from that point all the way up until right before Baywatch. So if you saw his transformation over the years, that was him and I mostly. Wow. And you, you've, you know, I've seen, I'm, I'm going to look at the list because it's kind of incredible. So there's Stallone. I want to get into that. That's kind of just because 
you know, I've got my own things with Stallone and Rocky. He's just the ultimate 10,000 nose story. But in terms of like, I saw something where J.K. Simmons, you worked with him and he looked transformed. Josh Brolin, you you put weight on him. You took weight off of him. Uh, the, uh, you know, Zac Efron, James Marsden, The Rock, you did uh, G.I. Joe. Now, I, now, while that's really cool to me, he's also... He was the rock already. I'm, I'm where I am just blown away is what you did with these other guys, like a J.K. Simmons. You know, I didn't even know how old he was when you worked with him, but that's amazing to me that you got those yeah. results. Um, J.K. is one of my best friends these days. Great actor. Yeah. Great actor. Uh, so, so, so you you do this with with Zach, and that's kind of a. It, Prior to that is when you're living out of your car. So you're living out of your car. You get, you go become a trainer. You start to make a little bit of headway. And then you get this, you get this call. Just, just walk me through, because this is, you know, kind of the, the crux of this show. How, when you were at your lowest point, what was going through your mind and how did you get out of it? Uh, what was going through my mind was, I mean, there were some emotional nights just thinking about the pinnacle of my Marine Corps career to here I am now with nothing and no one. And I was too embarrassed at the time to even tell my family what was going on. I'm sure they, I mean, I know they would have helped me, but it's kind of a pride thing. So not many people knew what I was going through and I was determined to make it out of it myself. Um, but the thoughts were, I can, I can make it through this. The Marine Corps taught me that any challenge that's thrown at me, I can get through it. No matter how hard it is, there's always a way through it. And there's always a lesson to be learned from whatever I'm going through. So, um, what I did to ground myself while I was kind of living out of my car was, uh, I started to prep for a bodybuilding competition just to keep my mind sane. And, uh, so I was kind of cooking food at my friend's places. I was sleeping on the massage table sometimes doing my laundry at the gym. And, uh, it kind of established some sense of, I don't know, normalcy routine, if you want to call it that. But, um, it was when I trained Stallone and then to cast the GI Joe was kind of when my life got back on track. I was financially stable enough to get my own place and uh was that before or after efron that was after efron so efron i I finished we finished uh beginning of 11 and then rolled into training with anthony hemingway who's i wouldn't be where i am today without him he's a, a tv director but after after him after him is when i started to get a lot of momentum because what what i did was i i had some buddies on the production side who started to send me all the IATSE reports so I could see all the productions coming into town, had the addresses, the offices. So what I did was I made flyers and I would just go to the offices every week, drop off flyers, meet everyone, just kind of mingle a little bit, talk shop. So everyone got to know me as the guy around town to train with. And that's how, that's kind of how I established myself in the business there. It was just guerrilla warfare, man. I was just 
passing my flyers out everywhere so everyone knew who I was. So whenever production came in and they needed training, I was the first guy they called. And so Stallone came in, he was doing a film there, and you, and, and someone suggested you to him. He didn't come with his own guy, which I'm surprised he didn't come with his own guy. Well, yeah, well, he, uh, I remember being in my car when his assistant called and said, you know, verified it was, I was who I was. And then said that, uh, she had Sly on the other line and he wanted to talk to me. He's coming in for a bullet to the head. So man, I remember just, he got on the phone and hearing his voice. I'm like, this is just ridiculous right here. I mean, I'm literally still living in my car and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about training him coming into town. He's coming up. He's telling me his plan, his injuries, what he's trying to do, what he wants to do. So I mapped out this whole plan of, of training before he got there. Uh, so I could be prepared for when he got into town. So walk people through this because I don't think people believe it. I do because of some things I've seen in my own career, but People listening right now, they go, no, no, wait a second. He trained Efron. He 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 did this, and now he's still in his car. And when he gets the call from Stallone, but that I believe that can happen. It's it, there's optics, and then there's the reality yeah. underneath it. We got to understand too, as a trainer, it's you. I mean, you got to be stacked with clients to make a living. You can't just have one person. And as good as it is you know, it was helping me kind of slowly dig out, but you figure after months and months of just nothing, it's going to be a while to to dig out of that. So, um, I wasn't making a million dollars training Zach. I mean, it's normal pay. There's no, I'm nobody. I'm helping him, you know, be a Marine a little bit. Uh, he came back in on the paper boy production, hired me. The money started to come in but this was like spring, summertime. Yeah. And that's what I think that people don't see the underbelly of, of any of these things. You know, I, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of talk to us about your approach to the, you know, there's kind of, as, as I look at it, cause I, I, I relate to it with, with what I do and how my career has gone. And then I I'm thinking of what you're saying right now. There's like the stuff that's great to say at a cocktail party And then there's the stuff that pays the bills. Now, if the stuff that's great to tell people at the cocktail party can bring in more business, that's great, which it sounds like is what you did. You kind of put your, it sounds like you put your, uh, you know, you put time and investment into some of these bigger names and eventually you're able to bypass these people that were probably making more money than you for a while. You kind of, you know, marketed yourself, I think in a very smart way. And the, the difference, the difference in the way I approached it was at the time I, I could care less about who anyone was. I had, I'm not celebrity. Didn't, didn't mean anything to me. I'm trying to fight to get my life back. And these are guys who want to train with me. I look the part, they respect what I do. I respect what they do. So there was kind of this mutual respect and I would always go over and above for my clients, no matter who they were. And I think for a lot of the big names, they weren't used to just having uh, a genuine relationship in terms of just being able to, to talk to someone and 
that person not expecting anything from them. If anything, it was always me asking what they need or what I can do. Can I help them with anything else? Is, you know, do you need a compression sleeve? Cause you said your knee hurt or, you know, here's a number to my massage therapist. If, if you get, you know, any type of muscle ache or whatever. So it was kind of that type of, I nurtured the relationships so much um, that they, it kind of just progressed into what it is. Everyone took care of me because I took care of them. And, yeah. and that's kind of what, that's how I thrived. And uh, I didn't do it with that intention. I just did it because that's me. That's maybe the number one thing that every entrepreneur that I sit down with on this show talks about. They say, don't go looking for handouts, add value. And if you add value and you make people's lives easier, they remember you. And when it's your default and that's just how you operate, it's not, it's not a shock that these, you know, bigger names are then coming to you and referring you to other people. When did it transition from being um, kind of maybe bigger names and it sounds good from the outside to where you really felt like you started to to get out of the hole and then start to build as a business. And did you, did you shift the way you operated? Did you do anything differently or did it just start to catch up? Like the goodwill just started to catch up to you in a good way. Um, well, one thing I learned about the business was a handshake doesn't mean anything and people's words don't mean anything. And I learned that the hard way because I had to take a hard look at the way I was doing business because I'm used to just doing everything on a handshake. And if I, if I tell you something, you have my word, that's basically as good as a contract and it's, it wasn't reciprocal. So I had this one actor, uh, stiff me out of several thousands of dollars. And when I finally was able to reach him, he told me shit happens. This is the business. Get used to it. So from that day forward, I learned about pay or play. So if we're going to train, unfortunately, this is the way I have to do this right now. You have to, here's my contract you sign. This is the way I have to do it. Uh, it was unfortunate and it kind of, kind of left a sour taste in my mouth because I didn't realize that's the way it was, but was it, a, was it an actor that you, like a big name that you knew before you interacted oh yeah. with them? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It was, it was pretty disgusting. And, wow. uh, it took me, it took me a minute to go over that, but it didn't change the way I conducted myself because I know not everyone is like that. It's just, unfortunately he was like that. Um, but I started to become known for the physical transformations, especially in doing in, in short periods of time, because you get these productions coming in and they're on crunch and they're on budget and everything. So you got to learn how to work with what you have. And that's what I was good at. Um, but as I started doing the transformations with the actors, the producers and directors started to come in and would, would comment about my presence and my look and ask me if I ever thought about getting in front of the camera. And that's where things kind of took a little bit of a turn to where it is now where I'm not really doing much training and more acting and stunts. What year was that? When did that start happening? And then how did you respond to it? Did you start taking classes? Did you start, uh, did you start giving up and saying no to opportunities to train so you could work on your craft as an actor and, and, and work as an actor? I tried to, I tried to balance it as much as possible. Um, but it was when I did American Heist with Hayden Christensen, 
so him and I were training together and I would pick him up every day. We'd go to the gym and I'd drop him off. So we always had time to talk. And, uh, there was a part in that film that he said I would be a perfect fit for the character's name is house kind of a big stocky dude. And, uh, I learned so much on that movie from him and from uh, Adrian Brody, Adrian Brody's become very close to me too. And with, with him, JK Simmons, some actors with that caliber of acting, I, I listened to what they say and, uh, I got an acting coach started, figuring out what the craft of acting was. I remember my first acting coach put me in the most awkward situations where I mean, to the point where I, I literally wanted to fight him because I felt like he was making a fool of me, but it was him trying to break the Marine down to me to, to access my vulnerability. And once I realized that it was like, wow, off to the races because this became a new therapy for me to deal with a lot of the shit that happened to me overseas that I was, never able to deal with that just kind of stayed repressed. So now I'm able to like use these emotions to do stuff with. And I'm a quiet, I'm a quiet guy by nature, but you can give me a character as crazy as you want. And I just, I love to just bring out so many different sides that someone would not expect from me. And yeah. I don't want to be characterized as just the, the big guy, the thug, the this, the that. I don't want to be typecast. I, I, I love drama. I love, uh, like really sinking my teeth into like deep emotions. And are you, have you been required to, and would you be willing to transform yourself the way you've transformed some of your clients to get, to lose a bunch of weight, to shed a oh, lot yeah. of the muscle to play something? Yeah, I would, I would love it. Cause then, then I know I've made it. If I'm at that point where someone wants me that bad and, and they, they have a, a specific look that they want me for, you want me to get fat? I'll get fat. You want me to get skinny? I'll get skinny. I don't care. Yeah. And how do you, how do you feel about with, with a lot of your clients, the bounce back, um, how have they found the bounce back of changing, morphing their body in a drastic way in a quick amount of time? How do you get them back or, or do you just stop working with them and they find their way back? But what are some of the, the dangers, the pitfalls, the, and any kind of warnings that you have for them after that transformation? The hardest transformation I've done was uh, Josh Brolin for the movie old boy. Uh, that was one that I had to consult with doctors and nutritionists and a lot of stuff because we literally fluctuated his body weight by 60 pounds in less than a month. I mean, literally like three weeks, really. And, uh, I don't, it's not something that you normally do because that, that can be a little unhealthy. That took him a, a, a little while to come back from, cause you start messing around with, with collagen production and joints and tendons and all that. But for the most part, when I'm approaching these transformations, not many people are wanting to put weight on. So they're wanting to drop weight. So there's a lot of different things you can do in terms of intermittent fasting and, and fasting. And I mean, as controversial as those topics are in the fitness realm, I can speak from example using them, how effective they are given that you do it the right way. And, it, and it's healthy because if, you're, if you have aches and pains and ailments and stuff, fasting is a tremendous way to, to heal yourself. And, uh, but I mean, I don't, I don't get into to anabolics. I don't get into all the crazy stuff that a lot of these guys would assume based on who I've worked with. I stay away from that because that's a career ender right there if you mess it up. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, it's, it's just really understanding how to manipulate food and carbohydrates and fats to, 
to fuel the workouts, to have the look you want. Yeah. Now, what is your, you know, the goal now you're, you're still doing some stunt work. Are you, are you totally out of the training realm and, and simply doing stunt work and acting, or are you still keeping a a toe in that pool? I still, I'm still open to, to training. I just don't seek it out as much as I, I used to because I'm, I'm trying to break away from the stigma of everyone knowing me as just a trainer. Yeah. Um, and this year was a big year in terms of, of acting, which ironically COVID hit and the whole thing went down the toilet Yeah. as it did for everybody. Uh, but I'm, I'm signed on to some relatively big projects and some decent sized roles that will really change the game for me once we can get back to work. That's great, man. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah you were in a film with uh, one of my best friends. I don't know if you guys worked together. Uh, Chris Messina in um, Birds of Prey. He was... Uh, I know the name. Ewan McGregor. He and Ewan McGregor, he was kind of uh, his... his uh, crazy... He had bleach blonde hair for the role and... Um, you know, when I was asking you about the transformation, he had done another film where he put on a bunch of just fat for a role with Ben Affleck. And he, that, that's why I asked that question was he, he put on, I think it was like 40 pounds of, you know, going from like 160 to like 200 of just fat for the, to play a gangster in this period piece. Um, and he afterward just, it, it kind of took a lot to bounce back from you know, just, just like digestion wise and everything, you know? Yeah. Cause a lot of, a lot of, a lot of what happens with the transformations is they, <clears throat> a lot of people just think just eat, eat, eat pizza, eat burger, eat whatever, pretty fat. But then you got to look at what that does to your insulin sensitivity, to your, to your metabolism. I mean, there's just, there's so many things that, uh, can take you down and make it harder to recover from. There's a lot of tips that I give a clients coming out of it. It's almost like, when you do a competition for bodybuilding where you reverse diet back out instead of just pigging out and then all of a sudden your joints can't handle it and you you start having a lot of issues. That's uh, there's a thing called 10 minute walks. It's, it's a pretty simple thing that helps a lot, but anyway, I could talk this stuff all day long. Well, before, before we get to kind of the the final three questions I I like to give everyone, I'm, I'm interested in, the mindset that you give now, I'm imagining it's a very particular thing for you when, when you have an actor come to you with a very specific agenda, they're getting paid for this role. I know that the motivation is very high for them. So you might not have to get into this quite as much, um, the mindset because they're hopefully already totally on board, but because you've changed people in such drastic ways, is there a way that you look at it that sets you apart from other trainers in terms of getting someone to believe that they can actually change that much in that short of a time? Yeah. What are what are some of the that I don't want to call them hacks because I actually think they're more like philosophies. How do you I, what, what are some of your beliefs on that? Um, I bring my marine mentality into it. And it's, it's, it's essentially when someone trains with me, I, I try to slowly ease them into the concept that 
this is going to hurt. If you don't, if you come into a gym and you're trying to achieve a transformation, especially in a short period of time, you better be ready for some pain because it, if you're not, I guarantee your results aren't going to come and you're going to leave. You might look a little bit better, but you're not going to really look like you want to look. So if you can push your body to a limit that you never thought you'd be able to get to, that's kind of where I go when I, when I'm training guys on transformations, because I bring them into this whole new world of reps that they've never experienced before. And, uh, so much volume. But then when you're doing that, you have to think about the nutrition because your nutrition, you know, is going to support what you're trying to do in the gym. So if there's pieces missing in there, then it's not going to work. So I just try and explain the pro the programmatic piece of it all, how it all ties together. When you put a puzzle together, if you're missing pieces, it's, it doesn't look complete. So that's, that's my, that's my approach for it. But the biggest thing is just embracing pain. Yeah. Which is why I, I mainly get a lot of the male actors because the women think that I'm going to transform them into, you know, the rock or something. They're afraid that you're going to transform them yeah. too, too far. So what, yeah. so, so in terms of volume, are you doing more, you know, more reps per set or are you doing more sets? Are you hitting body parts on, is it different for each each approach or do you have like an overall thing where you go, okay, this guy needs this. He's going to do push pull, you know, days, or this guy's doing, he's going to do, uh, you know, legs on one day, legs and shoulder. He's going to like, what, what is your overall philosophy or does it change from, from client to client? It'll, it'll change from client to client, depending on the role, um, depending on, you know, their, their character, how, how they have to move, how flexible they have to be that, that might change the training a bit. But for the most part, what I've seen when I moved to LA, what I saw so much of was this functional mentality of training, the CrossFit kind of, well, it's not even CrossFit. I would just see trainers basically with like balls and bands and pads and all this stuff, making people sweat, which is great. But just because you're sweating doesn't mean you're achieving the goal that you're trying to get to. So for me, nothing is ever going to beat free weights when you're trying to transform, nothing's going to beat it. And I prove it time and time again through all my transformations. But what I, what I like to do is if you think about a traditional leg workout, you know, people might have a rep range in mind of, eight to 12, 15. And then you might even say 20, like, holy shit, 20 is a ton of reps, but I'll push it up to 50 sometimes, maybe even a hundred sometimes as, as a shock. I mean, it, it, it shocks your system. You're, you're forcing so much blood into the muscle. There's a pain there that you can't even really comprehend, but that one workout you're going to notice just, just that one time. Now imagine repeating you're not going to repeat the same thing over and over because you don't want to do that much volume every time, but there's these little shock principles that you add in in the right place to progress you to push past these plateaus. And that's kind of my, my thought process. And a giant, I do a lot of giant sets, um, a lot of drop sets, things like that. A hundred reps. Yeah. Wow. So when I, so when, I, when the, when the rock and I were training, we did this thing called Y three K. So it's, 80 reps on the leg press, superset right into it, 20 reps on the hack squats, which which would equal 100 reps. 
And I mean, it's brutal. It's, it's, it's literally like a mental journey. And there's still real weight on there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You got to get in your mind and it helps you push, you know, you're thinking like, all right, five more, five more. You just start knocking them off by fives. Wow. That that's pretty, that is pretty incredible. Um, I'm glad I asked because I, I did not realize you would go up that high in rep count. Yeah. Um, so final three questions I give you. Um, before I get to them, what would, you, what would you consider the biggest no that you had? I mean, would it, would it be the, the, the situation in the car, sleeping in the car? Or was there anything else? Did we miss anything else that was? Uh, biggest no. I mean, and I, I don't even know what the biggest one would be because along this whole journey, I've just, I've heard no so many times. And sometimes you hear the direct no. And sometimes you hear the no in terms of just not hearing back from anybody. And, uh, so let me ask yeah. you my, my normal question that I ask everybody then, because that, that, that's kind of starting to lead into an answer to it. The word no means what to you? The word no just means, all right, I'll find another way to, to get to it. Like no is kind of a, uh, it's like a stop sign. You just stop and then you keep pushing forward. How about a go-to mantra? Do you have any go-to mantras that, that, you fall back on when everything is going sideways, any one combo of words that gets you through? Uh, it might sound kind of cheesy, but I always think about, you know, you live your purpose and you leave your legacy. And uh, I lost a lot of friends over in Iraq and uh, uh, I'm still here. So uh, it's important to me, it's important for me to be able to do something with this crazy career that I've been able to create. Because at the end of the day, <clears throat> for me, acting is genuinely therapeutic in a way that I can't put into words. And I'm so grateful for every opportunity that I get. And I never take anything in this business for granted because I know how many people are after the same thing but it's an opportunity for me to be creative, expressive, uh, use it for therapy. And you also get a platform to build, to create, to do the things that you ultimately want to do with your life in terms of foundations and helping other people. And I just look at uh, my friends, families who, yeah, that's my motivation. One last question. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene? And what would the advice be? Oh, I would intervene before I did drugs. And I would just give the advice of, uh, There's so much to life and you have so much potential that you have not even 
understood yet. Like you have so much potential that you haven't tapped into yet. And you can literally change the world, even though it seems like you're no one. I hope someone hears that. Someone who's listening hears that and takes that to heart because, yeah, look at you right now with the people you've shaped and that those people have all the impact. Like if you think about the ripple effect of what you've done and then think about that kid in sixth grade, kid in seventh grade ODing, there's someone out there listening or or someone listening knows someone that needs to hear that. And um, so I thank you for for being honest about it, being vulnerable about it. Um, obviously the, the acting classes are, are paying off cause you get, you, you're able to get vulnerable and talk about yeah. this stuff and not everybody can. Um, Aaron, I, I really yeah. appreciate you being here. Um, thank you for being on the show. And, uh, I, I hope I, I get to meet you post COVID where we can actually yeah. shake hands and, uh, you know, be in the same room. Um, I look forward to it. It's yeah, great man. to be out with you. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Time for my top three takeaways. Here we go. Number one, don't look for handouts. Add value. I've said it a bunch, but I'll say it again. Adding value is the best networking tool you will ever have. At the time, I, I could care less about who anyone was. I had, I'm not, celebrity didn't, didn't mean anything to me. I'm trying to fight to get my life back. And these are guys who want to train with me. I look the part, they respect what I do. I respect what they do. So there was kind of this mutual respect and I would always go over and above for my clients. It didn't matter who they were. He just made sure he was adding value to them. Didn't ask for favors, just did the work. Number two, I feel like I'm cheating with this one because it's the title of a recent Monday Morsels episode, but it's got to cost you something. When someone trains with me, I, I try to slowly ease them into the concept that this is going to hurt. In most cases, success can feel really painful. Art can feel really painful. In this quote, Aaron was talking about physical transformation, but it applies to any significant change in your life. What's great about what he says is that once you acknowledge that pain and accept it, you can do things you've never done before. Number three, I know COVID has taught all of us this lesson in 2020, but be grateful for everything. I love the way Aaron puts it here because he acknowledges that if you're in any competitive industry or looking to attain something that a lot of people want, it is by choice. So rather than complain, show gratitude whenever you get the chance. I'm so grateful for every opportunity that I get. And I never take anything in this business for granted because I know how many people are after the same thing. Aaron, thank you again. Such a great story. I hope all of you feel inspired. If you do, please share this episode with your friends and followers. If you think it can help them, leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your social media and connect with us at 10,000knows.com and get added to our mailing list. Before you come back here next Friday for another full-length interview, don't forget to tune in for our brief little Monday morsels to kick off your week. We'll see you soon. 